Hi, my name's Paul Grogan. Welcome to episode 31 of the All New Gaming Rules podcast. This episode is an audio version of the live Q&A that went out at the end of October 2022. This podcast is only made possible thanks to the support of my Patreon campaign. So if you enjoy the content that I create and you want to support the channel, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash gaming rules. And now on with the show. And I think we are live. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much for joining me. And as always with these live streams, please let me know if you can hear me and see me okay. Vicky's giving me the thumbs up, so it looks like we are live. Welcome to this month's live Q&A, October 2022. Already, it only feels like two weeks since the last live Q&A. Um, and quite a lot has happened. We're going to be covering all of the questions that I've been asked in advance from the BGG Guild. And then I'll be going to the live questions. We'll be here for about an hour and a half, as we are normally. Um, normally break these shows up into two halves. The first half is, as I say, I'm going to be going through all of the questions that I've been asked in advance on my uh, guild over on Board Game Geek, and then we're going to switch to the live questions. So if you're watching this live right now and you have any questions for me, put them in the chat uh, and start with the word question in capital letters. Vicky will see those and she'll transfer them uh, into the document that we're working off and we'll get through to them about halfway through. I'll also give you an update on the contest, who won the contest from last month, uh, and how to enter the contest from this month. Other than that, let's jump in. Before we start, I just wanted to mention I'm feeling pretty drained today, so I've been quite run down for the last few days, well in fact the last sort of week. Uh, so today might be a little bit of a struggle. If if I struggle more than normal, um, I'll try and power three, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much struggling to stay awake at the moment. So, uh, let's go on to the first of the questions. For those people who don't know, let's start this off. Uh, I have a guild over on Board Game Geek, uh, and every month, a few days before these live Q&As, I make a thread on there for people to ask questions. It's mainly for the people who can't make the live Q&A. If they want to ask me any questions but they can't make the live show, they get to ask them in advance. Um, if you're not a member of my guild on Board Game Geek, then please join. It is guild number 2258. Vicky will put a link in the chat right now. Don't worry, there isn't much traffic, so you're not going to get bombarded uh, with notifications. But what I would say is if you do join the guild, make sure you click on the subscribe button as well, because otherwise you will be a member of the guild, but you'll never actually see anything. So if you click on join to join the guild and then subscribe, and you're more than welcome to start any post on there yourself if you're a member of the guild. Um, anyway, we'll go over to the questions from the guild. So the first question is from Avron, who says... Have either of the cats destroyed or even damaged any of your games or miniatures? Good question. Uh, and the answer is yes, but a lot less than I would have expected. So um, when I was doing the Pathfinder Adventure card game solo campaign series, uh, I was using a plastic miniature, one of the old D&D miniatures to represent my character in the game. And it's like this female rogue with holding daggers up aloft like this. Uh, and unfortunately, Thor nibbled through one of the arms. So the arm is still hanging on, but literally by a thread. And I keep meaning to fix it somehow. I don't quite know how I'm going to fix it. Probably a bit of milliput. But other than that, we tend to be uh, quite lucky. We don't actually get that many destroyed components, which is which is good. Uh, next question, unrelated to cats, <laughs> is, and this is a really good question. Uh, do I feel that the experience that I've got with video editing over the years, so I've been editing videos now, I've been creating uh, YouTube videos uh, and editing them for about 10 years now. Uh, has it made a noticeable difference to how long I spend editing as the years go by, or perhaps the learned efficiency has led to more advanced edits? Both of those are true. When I first started uh, doing video editing and I was using a combination of Premiere Pro and After Effects and things like this, 
I was self-taught and I was definitely doing things very inefficiently. Um, and over the years, I've learned certain tips. I mean, I've changed my style over the years. If you remember going back, you know, eight, nine years ago, I did those fully animated 3D graphics videos. I did all of that myself. I don't do any of that anymore. Um, but then I started doing sort of the digital overlays and more real time stuff. And then when we got an upgrade to the Internet, I started doing live streaming. So I, I've over the over the 10 years, the channel has changed a lot. Um, but yeah, I, I've definitely learned a lot. I've learned a lot of shortcuts with the software, but I've also been able to do uh, more stuff than I was than I wasn't able to do before. Um, and obviously, I produce a lot of different types of videos. I do these videos like this. I do the live playthroughs, which requires uh, a lot of live streaming setup, and then I do the edited videos as well. But yeah, um, Martin says, right, this is another good question. Should there be a quality threshold for games in order to get published? Now, this is a very open question, but he says the background of where this all comes from is with over 100,000 games in circulation in parallel with the rush to, with the push to be environmentally conscious and especially with several crowd funding crowdfunding platforms now available including optional digital play tests throughout the duration yet despite all of that we still see average or below average games hitting shelves and end up in discount bins so the the the, the simple answer to this question is no right the question is should there be a quality threshold for games in order to get published? No, there shouldn't be a quality threshold because Peak Hope actually follows this up with a question of if the answer is yes, then who should be the judge of that? Um, now, personally, I absolutely agree that there are still dozens and dozens of games coming out every year that would not meet my quality threshold, either bad designs, bad rule books, bad artwork, bad, well, artwork, bad graphic design, because artwork, you know, you can make a game that's just like black and white on a piece of paper. It's not about whether the artwork is good enough or not. It's about whether the graphic design is good enough. So, yeah, bad games are coming out all of the time. Um, but I don't think there should be a quality threshold. What I would love to see, and when I become in charge of the entire universe, which I think, according to my calendar, is next week sometime... Um, then I'm going to I'm going to basically put some things in place that are going to make life better for everybody. Well, gamers, because they're the only ones that really matter, um, which is that no bad game should come out. But again, that's all subjective. Um, I mean, I would like games with no bad rule books. I would like games to be balanced. I would like games to have been play tested and everything else. But there are bad games coming out all of the time. Now, generally speaking, um, a, a lot of bad games the responsibility is on the publisher. Ultimately, it is the publisher's responsibility because if that game doesn't succeed, then the publisher is the one that will pay the price for it. And therefore, hopefully, they will learn from their mistakes. And if they do decide that they want to publish another game, they will learn from it. Um, what disappoints me personally is that there are still many 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 bad games coming out again bad my opinion um bad games coming out every year which are successful because of artwork ip miniatures whatever and those games in my opinion don't deserve to be successful and there's a few companies that that create games which are you know big kickstarter campaigns big miniatures big artwork popular ip the games are awful but yet these companies do really really well and the reason why I think that's unfair is on the flip side, you've got the small publishers of maybe just a few people 
that are spending years developing and designing a game which is an absolutely fantastic game, really solid, but it will only sell a tenth of what this big game does, even though the big game is terrible. Anyway, went off on a side side tangent there. A um, bit of a rant about uh, my personal thoughts on games. But no, I don't think there should be a quality threshold. I'd love there to be, but that is down to us as purchasers of games as to we need to make the decisions. And if we if we see a game which, you know, is a bad game, we shouldn't buy it and we shouldn't give any money to that publisher. I know, what do you think? Uh, next question uh, from Adumi. Greetings from Germany. Got two questions. Right. With the new Too Many Bones stuff, hopefully coming early next year, will we see more Too Many Bones content on my channel again? Because they discovered my channel because I did lots of Too Many Bones playthroughs. Um, now, Too Many Bones is one of those games which I've spoken about a number of times on the channel, and it has a massive learning curve, and it took me a long time to actually break that learning curve and get to play the game. And once I'd been through that, I actually started enjoying the game. And then in 2021, I said at the start of the year, I am going to do a Too Many Bones video every month. Once a month, every month, I'm going to do a Too Many Bones video. And I got to about August and then I stopped because uh, it's not that I wasn't enjoying it. It's just everything else took over. And in fact, uh, so those videos weren't sponsored, which means I was having to do them on my own time. And whilst I was enjoying the game, covering this, covering a game every month, meant it was actually taking up it was taking up too much of my time and it was getting in the way of the other stuff that I wanted to cover or needed to cover. So I ended up stopping for a couple of months saying, oh, I'm going to get back to this and I haven't got back to it. So the reality is I just don't have the time, whereas I would have loved to have carried on and I'd love to carry on even more. But looking at my schedule for the next three to six months, I honestly cannot see me being able to fit it in again. Um, because, I mean, if we if we focus on Chip Theory Games for a minute, who make too many bones, I've got Hoplomarchus Victorum and I've got Hoplomarchus Remastered. If I do anything regarding a, a game from Chip Theory Games right now, it will be to do an entire solo playthrough series of Hoplomarchus Victorum. But that is going to take me weeks, if not months, and it's unlikely that it will be sponsored, so I will end up having to do that on my own time. So yeah, short answer is... No plans to do any Too Many Bones content on the channel, but that isn't because I don't like the game. I just haven't got time to do everything. Um, second follow-up question is that uh, say that you're really looking forward to the new gear locks and their new uh, mechanisms. Do I have any favourite of the new gear locks? I haven't actually looked, unfortunately. Um, I don't, you know, whilst I enjoy the game, it's not something where I would look at the stuff that's coming out until I actually got it uh, to see, you know, whether, whether I'm only going to start looking into it in detail when I get it and I'm going to start playing it because otherwise I will read all of the stuff and I'll go oh that sounds interesting but it's taking up brain space um, when I, I should be learning other stuff. Next question from Andy Pelton about the Arkham Horror the card game. How much of this have I played? Um, Andy says he knows that I've done playthroughs of Carcosa and Forgotten Age. Yeah pretty much 90% of my plays of the Arkham Horror card game have been live streamed. Um, Bef when I was just getting into the game, I played the original campaign, The Knight of the Zealot, uh, a few times with different people. Uh, I have done an entire live playthrough series of uh, The Forgotten Age, and I've done an entire live playthrough series of Carcosa. I have also played uh, Dunwich, Dunwich Horror, is it? I think, or well, anyway, I've, I've played through that one. That wasn't live streamed, so I've played through three of the campaigns. Um, how do I rate the campaigns that I've played? I really enjoyed Dunwich. I also really enjoyed Carcosa. I'm 
it was quite a while between playing them, so I'm not sure which one I preferred. Carcosa definitely did a few things a little bit differently, but there were certain parts of Dunwich that I, I really enjoyed. Forgotten Age I wanted to enjoy, but I found it quite punishing. It, it possibly was the better one because of the way that it did things, and it was a lot more interesting, but I found certainly the initial scenarios, uh, yeah, too punishing and a bit too brutal. Uh, it seems to be a common conception about the game and that the return to the Forgotten Age seems to have fixed that. Um, but yeah, it, it's really tricky for me to rate them because I remember playing them and I remember bits about them and I can't hand on heart say, oh, this one was definitely better than that one. Each one had their had their good moments. I'm also a fan of the base campaign that came with the, uh, with the original game. Uh, and what are my thoughts on the new release style? I absolutely 100% agree with it. I didn't like the old release schedule. I thought it was awful for many reasons. Um, so I like the fact that they've changed it. For those people who don't know, uh, the Arkham Horror card game used to release uh, six, they used to release a sort of big box which had uh, scenarios one and two in it. And then they would release the other ones as chapter packs. So every month, a new chapter pack would come out. And now they just released two boxes, one for all the investigator stuff, one for all the campaign stuff. It's much, much better. It's a far better format. So I'm glad that they've done that. Uh, next question from a Mr. Tony Boydell. Is there any, is there truly any innovation in game design at the moment? Tony says we get plenty of well-engineered games, but aren't we a bit in the doldrums? Um, you might be right, Tony. Now I'm, the background to this, to my answer is, I am somebody who goes to Essen every year and gets excited about all of the new games that are coming out from Essen. And I've recently got back from Essen and I've brought back 20, 25 new games and I'm excited to play all of them. I don't tend to look at them and go, is this game innovative or not? I look at a game and go, did I enjoy this? Was this an enjoyable game to play? You know, a lot of games these days are doing something a little bit different. Um, but I think what Tony's getting at is that there hasn't been anything recently which is real innovation. I mean, if we look at one of the big hits from last year, Ark Nova, is there anything in Ark Nova which is innovative? It has lots of bits from various other games, and there might be. If there is, if you think there, there is something innovative in Ark Nova, then, then let me know, because um, there might be. But overall, Ark is a great game. And the fact that I think it don't, didn't have anything new and exciting it was a combination of lots of other things but done in a very well very good way that makes me excited so yeah if if all of the new games that i brought back from SN this year if if there is nothing innovative in any of them that doesn't bother me doesn't bother me whatsoever um as long as those games are enjoyable to play and the rule book good then 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 i'm happy um but that is an interesting question uh, and i'm keen to to know what uh, what you think so if you if you're watching this live or if you're watching this back afterwards, leave me a comment. Anything that I talk about in this live Q&A, we normally get, how many people have we got watching live? We've got about 100 people watching live. These videos, after a few weeks, normally get about one and a half to 2,000 views. So that means there is about 1,800 people who watch this video back afterwards. And if you are one of those people, I am curious to know what you think. Do you think there is any innovation in game design at the moment? And the follow-up question is, is that a problem? Because... When Tony posted this question on by BGG Guild, Roderick Smith replied and said, uh, corollary to Anthony's question, do we need constant stroke cutting edge innovation in game design? 
or is it possible to make a great game design a great game that doesn't do anything new absolutely roderick that that's what i that's what i was sort of getting at is that for me personally i don't come back from essen and go eh, there was nothing nothing innovative these days um i don't mind as long as the games are great um you know and they're, and they're fun to play that that that's fine um but that's down to tony it's down to people it's down to games designers go and go and you know do something innovative but i will caveat it with this my other personal opinion is that just because something is new and innovative doesn't mean that it's good so if you're a games designer and you're thinking oh yeah the game market is just boring at the moment and there's nothing new oh i'm going to do something new i know what i'm going to do i'm going to have a game where people eat the dice and then we count how many of them no 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 you know sometimes innovation can can go too far um with with ideas that don't work obviously that example is a silly one but what i mean is i have seen a number of games in the past where somebody's tried to do something new and it just doesn't work and they're doing something new just for the sake of it right next question this is from andy pelton again what is the most overproduced game you have seen now this is one of the questions that i think needs to be turned into a question on the guild um, because I'm curious to, to see what everybody else thinks. So um, if Chrissy is in the chat, Chrissy is in the chat. Um, we have the first question to put on the guild. Or Andy, you might want to put the question on your guild yourself. Have a chat with Chrissy so that you don't put the same question. But we're going to have a question on the guild. So yeah, this question is going to be asked on the BGG guild. And if you want to contribute to that question, um, then just head on over to the guild. And Andy says, what is the most overproduced game you've seen? And I'm, you know, if you're watching this live or whatever, you want to put some comments in the in the video, let me know. Um, I'm not sure what the most overproduced game is that I've seen, but I wanted to touch on, first of all, my personal opinion, my thoughts on what defines an overproduced game. Because I think there's a very big difference, and I've written it down here. There is a big difference for me between very high production quality and overproduced. So overproduced for me and you know, correct me if I'm wrong or let me know if you think anything different. Overproduced is something which is put into a game which has clearly cost extra money um, and maybe looks nice, but it's totally not needed. So bling. And we have a lot of games coming out these days that are on Kickstarter where there's all of these add-ons with all of these extra components that just make it look nicer. Um, so, you know, if we if we talk about, for example, let's talk about Hopla Marcus Victorum again which I am very excited to play at the moment. And I did an unboxing video of it uh, last week, I think. I wouldn't have said Poplar Marcus Victorum is an overproduced game. It is very high production quality, but I don't think it's overproduced. That's my personal opinion on that. So yeah, I'm curious to see what, um, what people class as an overproduced game. Um, and Andy is also saying, if I'm working on a project that has clearly it's overproduced do i raise this with the publisher or whatever to be honest andy it really depends on a number of factors first of all um how much i'm involved with that project if i'm involved in a project and i'm just helping to do consultancy on the rule book or if i'm doing a video on the project or something like that then the game's already done you know it's it's it, it's totally nothing up to me if i'm involved in a game which I'm less so these days than I used to be, like when I really got involved working with Czech Games Edition. Um, if I'm involved at a stage where discussions are being had about what components we're going to have in the game, whether I would say anything if I felt it was overproduced, that all depends on how comfortable I would feel and my relationship with the publisher. But generally speaking, 
where I am with games right now, I don't get involved in that particular um, thought process or discussions. Um, but Andy's saying that it popped back into his mind after he saw the Redwood Kickstarter. So uh, I, I've seen that there is a game on Kickstarter right now called Redwood. I don't know anything about it. Um, but apparently it has 3D stands for the movement and photo templates and they look really fiddly to use. So there we go. That's, that's Andy's thoughts. Right. Next question from Angus. Angus is asking me, why do I hate rule books that use the point format, e.g. rule number 1.1.13? Right. First of all, Angus, I don't hate them. Um, I don't personally use that format myself, but I don't hate it. Um, I've read a number of rule books that use that that system. Uh, it comes from old old rule books and it comes from a lot of wargaming rule books. Um, but I personally don't use it, uh, but I don't hate it. I think the misconception is because I don't use it myself in the rule books that I work on, and I personally don't believe it is necessary. Um, there are many, many, many good rule books out there. In fact, most rule books do not use this numbering system. Um, and there are many great rule books out there that don't use the numbering system. So the numbering system is not needed. Um, and I get why a lot of people find it useful is because you can reference and you can say, see rule 17.3.4. However, uh, you know, if that was a rule book that I would write, I would say, see the rules on taxation page 12, which in my opinion is just as good. Because if it says, see the rules on taxation page 12, I turn to page 12, I see a big header that says taxation and there's the rule. That for me has exactly the same as see rule 12.1.3 where I would have to go, okay, I need to find section 12, 12.1.3, there you go. So it is more precise, I get that. Um, and if people are used to using uh, reading that point system, then it's fine for them. However, the reason why I don't use it is general readability and general accessibility. The major, in my opinion, the majority of people reading rule books, uh, and obviously this doesn't apply to a lot of people, I'm just saying the majority of people, when they're reading a rule book, if they see that old style bullet, uh, not the bullet points, but the numbering system, if you saw that in, for example, the Catan rule book, or the Flamecraft rule book, or the Azul rule book, or something like that, it would put people off. Because it looks too technical, it looks too detailed, and it looks like it's a an old technical manual. And I think that's why a lot of people don't use it anymore. But that's not to say that I hate it. Um, Angus is saying, yeah, he's got an engineering background. Uh, so it, it is easier to reference. Yes. And I, and I get that. I get that. Right. Gavin is asking a question. This is another really good question. We got, we, we got this, this month might win the month for the best questions asked. Um, so Gavin Kenny is asking, do I think that these days, Games get sold on their aesthetics rather than the quality of the actual game. One word answer, yes. If so, <laughs> do you think that there are a number of beautiful but mediocre games that are being rated higher than they should be on BGG and very interesting mechanically but bland looking games that are rated down on BGG because of their looks? Yes, yes and yes. I agree with absolutely all of that. I and, and we've been in this situation, I think, for at least how long? Um, at least five years, possibly more. And and yeah, ga games these days are getting sold on their aesthetic. If you look at successful Kickstarter campaigns 
or game found campaigns or whatever crowdfunding platform it is those crowdfunding platforms are very highly focused on here's how attractive the game looks here's pictures of all of the artwork here's pictures of all of the miniatures here's all of the cool stuff this is how good it looks and there's actually not much about the game itself until later down the page and that's just life that's how it works that's how it sells um so yeah there's definitely definitely there are people out there who are buying games purely on their aesthetics and not looking into the details i'm not saying everybody but i'm saying it is a big factor and you are absolutely right there are a large number of games that are mediocre games but they look nice so people are buying them because they look nice and people are rating them higher on BGG. The ratings on BGG is completely up to you how you use it. But when I use it, I rate the whole package. I don't just rate a game highly on BGG because it looks pretty. Um, but I think a lot of people do. Uh, and also there are bland looking games that are rated down on BGG because they don't look very good. I think that's just how it is. Looks sell. Always have done, always will do. Uh, next question from Matthew, a board game related one. In my experience, do I think that Endless Winter is better with a few expansions added to it or simply with the base game? That's a very good question. I mean, I've played Endless Winter a lot. I've probably played it about 12 times in total. I've played in the base game probably about six or seven times and I've played with each of the expansions once or twice. I'm, not, to, to be honest, the question of which whether it's better with a few expansions or not, I'm going to say no, but that's not to say it's worse. It's different. I mean, if you add in the Ancestors expansion, it changes the game. If you add in Rivers and Rafts, it changes the game. If you add Cave Paintings, it changes the game. I don't think any of them make it any better as a game, and I don't think any of them make it worse. And I know that's a bit of a cop-out answer, but I, I was sitting down last night looking at this question, and I thought, honestly, truly, do I think any of these expansions make it better or worse? And the answer was no. So, yeah, that's my honest answer. Um, next question. Which part of England would be, in my opinion, a good place for a first-time Canadian tourist travelling with wife and daughter aged 12 and 14? It's a very, very specific question, this. Um, <laughs> planning to come to the UK sometime in the next couple of years for two to three weeks, but don't know what's a must-see outside of London. But you really prefer countryside and would like your opinion if you don't mind sharing it. I don't mind sharing it at all, but everybody is going to have their own uh, opinions. And I chatted with Vicky last night about it. We live in the southwest of England. The southwest of England probably has very nice countryside. Some might say the nicest countryside in the country. I'm not going to say that because um, I'll get lynched by other people. Um, but the countryside in the southwest of England is very nice. But also if you want to go to somewhere like the Lake Districts, which is the northwest of England, that's very nice as well. Wherever you go, I think you will find a really nice area. It all depends where you are flying into uh, and whether you're going to hire a car and how much you'd want to travel around and things like that. To give you an idea, the southwest of England, where I am, is about three hours away drive from London, something like that. Maybe three, three and a half hours, depending on the traffic. Um, so it's not it's not a big journey to get down into the southwest, but a lot of it is weather dependent, time of the year dependent and things like that. Um, but yeah, the, the, I don't think there is a something that you must see outside of London. It it just really depends where, where you want to go. 
Right, next question from Brian. Uh, what snacks did I take with me for my car journey to and from Essen with Luke? Probably the most important question that we've been asked this evening. Um, I took some bananas and I took some bags of nuts. I think that's what I took with me. Did I take anything else? Oh, I took some of those um, little saurine, mini saurine loaves, I think. Um, yeah, the journey to Essen was obviously a long journey. Luke drove and I was a passenger, um, but I get hungry very quickly. So I always have lots and lots of snacks with me. Did I get the chance to try any German biscuits in Essen? Stroop waffles don't count because they're Dutch. No, I didn't. Um, no, I mean, I didn't really get to try any biscuits in Germany. Um, I just ate, I, 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 you know, I had breakfast at the hotel. I grabbed a sandwich for, for lunch and I had dinner at the, generally speaking, at the hotel. And then I sort of snacked on nuts and Stroop waffles. So I, I didn't go out of my way to get any German biscuits. Brian also wants to know what is my favourite flavour of wagon wheels? Now, I read this question and I was instantly confused because I didn't realise there were different flavours of wagon wheels, but apparently there is. There's the original ones, the jammy ones, the orange ones, or the sadly discontinued toffee ones. Well, I would have loved the toffee ones because uh, I'm all about toffee, um, but I don't think I've ever had orange ones and I've definitely not had jammy ones. Um, but I do like I do like the original ones. I've not had a wagon wheel for years. Am I disappointed that McVitie's are not making their Halloween lemon and slime Jaffa cake bars this year? I didn't realise they did lemon and slime. <laughs> I believe they're selling the horrible blackcurrant Jaffa ween bars instead. Yeah, I did see them in the shops the other day. So, no, I'm not disappointed. I have had the lemon and lime Jaffa cakes at one point in the past. Uh, did not like them. Also did not like the pineapple ones. Pineapple ones wasn't keen on those. And the lemon and lime ones wasn't keen on those either. Uh, and Brian is going to finish off the biscuit related questions with a non-biscuit related question. Do I have any plans to come to Tabletop Scotland next August? Um, no, for a couple of reasons. I mean, he does say it would make the ideal honeymoon. Um, <laughs> we are getting married next August. Um, so, you know, I've, I've, I've left August blank because we might be doing something, we might not. Um, but Tabletop Scotland, I've heard about it and I've got a lot of friends and patron supporters who go to it and it's a very good convention. Um, unfortunately, I've, I've, I've had to cut down the number of conventions that I attend uh, everywhere, really. And anything that is a long, long way away, uh, I find, yeah, I mean, apart from Essen, I will always be going to Essen, but I've had to cut out Aircon. Uh, it's kind of ruled out Tabletop Scotland and going to the American conventions as well. Um, just because the traveling that distance doesn't sit well with me. Next question from Radek. Uh, someone has already touched on the topic of cats. So does our cat sometimes jump on the table during the game? And if so, do we generally remove them? Um, not very often. Not very often. We're quite lucky uh, in a way that they don't generally jump up on the table. Thor did during the game on Saturday, but you know he didn't actually get onto the table. So yeah, we're quite lucky and we don't have the cats jumping on the table and destroying the game. That doesn't generally happen to us. Um, he says that he often has such a guest on the table as a careful observer, but doesn't spoil anything. He just lies there and watches the gameplay. Excellent, excellent. Uh, right, next question. This is another good one. And, I, and I'm going to upset some people here. I'll warn you now. Recently, there has been a discussion in Poland about marking films on YouTube as sponsored material uh, and about opinions of reviewers if they got games from publishers. Um, so... Here's, here's the question, and here's what Radek is, is, is mentioning about, because I did talk about this in my vlog from October. And I'm very, very curious to know what you think in the chat. So I want a yes or no answer from everybody who is watching this live now. 
And also, if you're watching this back afterwards, I'd like your opinion as well. It's very, very clear that if a content creator such as myself was paid money to produce a video, that we should mark that video as paid promotion. I do that. Everybody else that I know does that. A few years ago, people weren't doing that. There was a lot of trouble over it. That's not the question, right? That That is not what this question is. So put, put aside that. If I get paid money to make a video, then on YouTube, that video will say paid promotion. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is if I get given a game for free by the publisher for me to do with what I want. And sometimes that will mean me covering it on the channel in the way of a video. The question is, should I mark those videos as paid promotion because they gave me a copy of the game? Nothing else. They didn't give me any money. They didn't give me two copies of the game. They just gave me one copy of the game, which was a review copy of the game. Now, there are some people who believe the law says that that video should be marked as paid promotion because receiving a copy of a game, according to some regulations, counts as payment. Now, I don't do that, but also neither does any of the big names. Dice Tower don't do it. Shut Up and Sit Down don't do it. Rado doesn't do it. You know, I could list dozens and dozens of content creators. There is one at least that I know of that does do it because they firmly believe that even receiving a review copy of a game counts as payment. But I personally don't. That That's my opinion on the game, uh, my, my opinion on the subject. Uh, and for example, this Friday, I am doing a live playthrough of Attiwa, which is Uwe Rosenberg's new game. Lookout Games gave me a copy of the game at Essen for free for me to have and take to GridCon and do all of these things with, and I'm going to be doing a video on it on Friday night. I've not been paid any money whatsoever to create that video, so I'm not marking it as paid sponsorship I, because I wasn't. I wasn't paid any money to create the video. Following on from that, I'm going to be doing a video on Splendor Jewel, which again, I've not been paid any money to do that. Sure, they gave me a copy of the game, but that's it. However, on Sunday, I am doing a live playthrough of Frostpunk, and I am being paid to create that video. So therefore, I will mark that as paid promotion. That's what I do. And I believe that's what most other content creators do. Whether it's legally allowed or not, I don't know. But to be honest, if the big names are doing that and the big names and nobody's pulling them up on it, then a small channel like me is fine. Anyway, there's apparently a lot of discussion about this going on in Poland. It's not just Poland. There's, there's discussions about this going on everywhere. Um, but that that's what I think about it. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. Now, of course, if 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 the authorities come down on Dice Tower, shut up and sit down, Rado, and say, even if you got a free copy of the game, you must now do this. Otherwise, we're going to close your channel down. Then, of course, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm not going to deliberately, you know, <laughs> do something wrong. But I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's wrong. Anyway, Mick is asking, now that I'm a public figure in the industry, how does the experience of playing games when streaming and doing a live stream versus when the camera is not on? Do I prefer one or the other? Uh, I imagine this is not an easy question to answer. Actually, it is quite an easy question to answer because I have a lot of experience with it. In fact, 
I play games now live streamed more often than I play games not live streamed. It's probably roughly 60-40, I think, maybe, maybe 70-30. Um, so yeah, I, I live stream games or doing games on video more than when I'm not doing games on video. It is more stressful. It is a lot more stressful doing a live stream because I'm looking at the chat, I'm making sure the microphones are working, all of the technology and all of the stuff. It's a huge amount of effort, especially when I'm also teaching the game and playing the game and I'm checking that everything's working fine. It's a lot of extra work. So therefore, when I'm playing a game outside of that, it is a lot less stressful. And therefore, is it more enjoyable? It's not actually that much more enjoyable. You might you might think the obvious answer is it surely it's more enjoyable because it's less stressful. I do so many live streams now that I'm used to it. So for me, I don't mind which it is. Um, but yeah, there are there are definitely differences. The other big thing is whenever I'm doing a video and a live stream, and I know a lot of you watching this already know this, but for example, on Sunday we played Lord of the Rings: Journeys in Middle Earth. Me, Vicky, Mark, and Sally. We played it. It wasn't live streamed. We played it downstairs. So I got the game out. I set it up on the table and we played the game. If we were live streaming that, I would have spent probably about an hour and a half to two hours setting up the room, setting up all of the different cameras, getting the microphones ready. Most people who watch videos on my channel just turn on and go, oh, Paul's out there playing a the game with his friends. They don't see the amount of hours of preparation that's gone into just setting everything up and moving everything around. Um, and when I'm not live streaming, I don't have to do that. Next question for Mick, is it odd being internet famous in terms of going to conventions? Um, I've heard it's quite common now for people who are very well known in niche areas, have this strange experience of being utterly unknown in almost all of their life, but then are essentially like rock stars when they go to events in their area. Um, I imagine you get approached a fair bit at places like Essen, curious to know your thoughts. You're absolutely right, uh, Mick. I can I can go anywhere, you know, in Columpton or Exeter or, or wherever, and I'm just a normal person walking down the street, going to the shops and doing all that stuff. I go to somewhere like Essen and at least probably 10 to 15 times a day, somebody will come up to me and say, hi, Paul, just wanted to say, love your videos. Thank you very much. Can I get a selfie with you, et cetera, et cetera. That's just how it is, you know, and then I leave there and you know, back into the normal world again. So I don't have any thoughts on it. Um, you know, I'm not, I've always said I'm not really a celebrity. I don't act like a celebrity. I don't think of myself like a celebrity and I'm not. Having people come up to me and say that they enjoy the content that I create, that's great. That, that makes me feel good because it means, you know, I'm creating content and there are people out there watching it and, and that's good. Um, so yeah, it gives me a nice warm feeling. And if you're one of those people who has ever seen me at a convention and is too nervous to come over and say hello, just come over and say hello because it makes me very happy if uh, if, if you say that, that, you know, that you've enjoyed the videos that I make. Um, it probably was a little unusual when it started happening, but now that it's been happening for a few years, I'm kind of used to it now. Um, it's, it's still nice, you know, and I don't get carried away with it all. It's just, um, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a nice thing to happen. Uh, what does my local gaming group think of the experience of games when you stream them? Do they just forget or are they camera conscious? I don't know. Since since you since I since you asked that question and since I read that question, which was yesterday, I haven't seen any of them. But it is something that I'd like to ask them. 
Now, a lot of them uh, are patron supporters of mine that are on the Slack channel. So I'm curious to know whether a lot of the regulars who come round, you know, Peter's been on a lot of uh, videos, Arthur, um, Paul Snugs, Rob Turner, Rob S. Lots of local friends have come round. You know, Rick's been here quite a bit. Rick's in the chat now. Um, so, yeah, that, that is more of a question for them, uh, is, is when they are here and they are playing games around the table, does it feel different for them? Does it make them more nervous? Are they bothered by it? Or do they just play it as if they would normally? So it's a good question, not one I can answer. Right, questions from Roger. Uh, as someone in the business, obviously you barely have time to keep up with the new uh, ones, even if you only play them once or twice. Yeah, absolutely. But if I weren't in the business, would I be playing fewer games more extensively or would I be playing lots of different games two or three times? That's a really, really good question, Roger. If I didn't, work in the industry how would my game playing be i think to be honest it would it would be different from what it is now because there's a lot of games which i cover on the channel which are sponsored videos um that is because this is my job and i need to do the sponsored videos in order to you know pay the bills and everything else there are some sponsored videos that i do which are for games which I probably was going to buy myself and I would probably cover it on the channel, you know, if, if I was a millionaire and didn't need to get paid for making videos. Um, but there are other games that I would cover on the channel because the publisher reaches out to me and asks me to cover it. And I'm not going to start listing those now because you might you might infer from that that it's not a game that I want to cover on the channel. That's absolutely not true. Um, and, uh, and there's been a good example of that recently. I spoke about rebuilding Seattle in my latest video log. Um, WizKids, the publisher, asked me if I would create a tutorial and playthrough for rebuilding Seattle. Rebuilding Seattle is probably a game that I wouldn't have even heard of. I wouldn't have even, you know, re reached out or looked at or anything like that. However, they asked me to create a video on it. I looked at it. I said, yes, I did it. And I thought the game was absolutely fantastic. And I'm really happy that I did a video on it. But every time I cover a video on the channel, which was sponsored, where the publisher asked me to cover their game, is time which I would have spent playing probably one of my existing games. So you're absolutely right, Roger, is that I probably would cover fewer games, but I would play them more often. Um, Roger also wants to know about sleeving cards. So sometimes I play with sleeved cards, sometimes without. What are the main reasons I decide to sleeve or not? So there's a couple of things here. First of all, there are some games that I have where I have sleeved all of the cards. For example, ISS Vanguard. I just got my copy of ISS Vanguard a few weeks ago and Awaken Realm sent me the big box which contained all of the sleeves to sleeve all of the cards. So I did. I sat there for a few hours one night and I sleeved all of the cards. Now, ISS Vanguard, there are a number of cards in there which you never shuffle and they do not need sleeving. Why did I sleeve them? I sleeved them because they'd sent me the sleeves for the game and I had these sleeves specifically for this game. Um, so, you know, I sleeved them. If you look at another side of the argument, Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle-earth. Even just this afternoon, I have decided to buy some sleeves for my copy of Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle-earth. But I'm not sleeving all of the cards. I'm only buying like four packs of the mini cards. I'm only sleeving the cards which get shuffled regularly. So Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle-earth has hundreds of cards in there. And sure, if I really wanted to, I could just sleeve the whole lot. But personally, I don't see the point in me sleeving a hundred item cards 
when I'm only going to occasionally take one of them out. They're never going to get shuffled. I mean, I, I, I could sleeve them to protect them, but I'm not going to sleeve them. And then other times, if you've watched any of my Endless Winter videos, the Endless Winter videos, we didn't use sleeved cards. Now, my copy of Endless Winter is sleeved. I had to unsleeve my copy of Endless Winter to do the videos on it because unfortunately the overhead lights that I've got reflect so much with the overhead camera. Now, I can fix that by putting extra lights in and turning off the overhead lights, but for that video, I, or for those videos, I decided to unsleeve the cards. So generally speaking, my decision on whether to sleeve cards or not is, are those cards shuffled? If they're not shuffled, then I probably won't bother sleeving them. That's, that's generally it. Finally, last question from Roger. Have I ever tried Lou Pims? He prefers them to McVitie's Jaffa Cakes as he thinks the chocolate tastes more chocolatey and the orangey more orangey. But perhaps they just travel well than McVitie's. He lives in Canada. So I've never heard of these unless I have. So Tony, who lives in Belgium, um, was at Essen and said he had something for me which he forgotten to bring with me, which he has recently, like this week, put in the post. And I think this might be what Tony said he was going to send me. Let me know, Tony, if, if, if it is. Because as soon as I saw that question, that name rang a bell. Right, next question from Alex. We're going to finish off all of these questions and then we'll do the contest and then we'll go to the live chat. In the last Q&A, Alex asked about winning and losing and whether I preferred losing or winning by a large margin or a narrow margin. And I didn't fully answer Alex's question. Um, he said, I spoke about winning, but not losing. So if I lose a game, would I prefer to lose by a large margin because my opponent played a better game? Or would I prefer to win by a narrow margin, knowing that I could have won? To be honest, I, I think I would prefer to lose by a narrow margin um, because then I knew that I played well and I knew that victory was in my grasp and I just missed out. If I, if I play a game and you win with 90 points and I end up with four, I'm not going to enjoy that. I'm going to go, either I'm not very good at the game or the game's broken or you were cheating or something was wrong. I mean, that's an extreme situation, but I like close games. So if a game is very close, I will enjoy it more. And if I if I only lose out by a couple of points, I mean, I don't mind. You know, if we, if we play a game and you score 90 and I score 60... I'm clearly not very good at the game. I have no problem with that. I'm not going to get upset or angry, but I, if I lose by a little bit, I would probably enjoy that. Next question from Phil. Uh, when you've been digging through old games in the garage or loft, what has been the most surprising thing that you found? Was there something you thought that had been binned years ago and has now turned up? I asked Vicky about this last night because I don't think there has been. So for those people, uh, I, I've spoken about this a little bit on my Slack channel recently, but I've got a space problem in the house. I've got shelves everywhere. We've got games all over the house. We've got games in three different rooms. We've got games all over the attic and I've simply got too many games. And the problem is not going away. In fact, the problem is getting worse and worse because I probably acquire about 80 to 100 new games a year. And it's just a ridiculous. So I've made the difficult decision a few months ago that I was going to get rid of a lot of my games. To be fair, there's been a huge amount of games that have been moved from primary storage into secondary storage, secondary storage to tertiary storage, and then tertiary storage into the attic. And I think, well, hang on a minute, Paul, if you've moved them around so much and you've put them in the attic, surely you're never going to play it again. It is literally just taking up space in the attic. So what I've done, uh, this was only like a couple of months ago, I went through the attic and I have moved about, what is it, about 80 games or 100 games into 
uh, into the garage, which is like the sixth stage of storage. And they are they are to be gotten rid of. I will I, I will be putting a lot of them into the charity raffle at Gridcon, or I will be putting them into bring and buys. And whenever I put games into the bring and buys, uh, I give all of the money to charity. Because a lot of these games I got given for review. And I think it's morally wrong for me to sell a game for money that I was given as a review copy. Personally, I, I, I don't like doing that. So if I ever put a game into a bring and buy that was one that I didn't buy myself, the money then goes to charity. Um, but the question is, while I've been doing all of that, did I come across anything that was a surprise that I didn't realise I had? No, because as I was going through them, there was a couple like, oh yeah, there was this one and there was this one, but there wasn't anything that was a surprise. I kind of knew that I, I, I had it. Um, next question, what's the weirdest place that we found Thor or Loki asleep? Um, it says, Steve has managed to trap himself in the downstairs toilet, found him curled up on a towel. So we, we talked about this last night. Loki, now and again, uh, I mean, it's not it's not weird, but Loki will sleep on anything which is soft. So, for example, the other day, uh, we brought the washing in from outside, but we um, we just sort of threw it all over the sofa. Right. We didn't we didn't put it away. We brought it all in from the outside because it was late or something like that. And we just threw it all over the sofa. The sofa was covered in 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 dry washing. Five minutes later, Loki's asleep right in the middle of it. So anything soft, he will just he will just sleep on. The other thing that Loki likes sleeping on because he's a black cat is anything that's black. So occasionally, if I was to leave my rucksack in the hallway downstairs, which is a black rucksack, he would sleep on it and literally you couldn't see him. So I think he has this he has this affinity for things that are the same colour as him. So he, he likes to hide and disguise himself and he, he sleeps on things that are black. Right, final question from the BGG Guild is from Kenneth. Now that I've retired from rulebook writing for some time, I announced it in October last year, but I've still been spending this year wrapping up some projects. Is there anything about it that you miss? Do I think that the overall standard of rule books has gone up since you first started working full time in the industry? Yeah, there are things about it that I miss. Um, I certainly don't miss the stress, the late nights, the weekends. I, I don't miss all of that. I'm still doing that now, but I'm doing it for different reasons. Um, but there are things about it that I miss. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what it's, it, it's just it's a good feeling sometimes. And some of the publishers that I've worked with, I mean, the ISS Vanguard rulebook, working with the designers and the, the and the developer of that was a pleasure. It was a really, really nice project to work on. The Frostpunk rulebook, uh, working on the Frostpunk rulebook, again, it, I mean, it was a job. You know, it was hard work. It was really, really hard work. But the people I was working with were great people. And I don't get that opportunity now I mean, I work with publishers on videos, but it isn't as intense. I mean, there are some days that I was working on, you know, the Frostpunk rulebook where I would be speaking to the designers and the developers and everything else for like five hours a day. For like two weeks, just working on these rules and working them out and everything else. And it was fairly intense. I don't have that level of discussion and interaction now with people. And when it's when it's a really good team that I'm working with, that I, I do miss. And um, the other bit that I miss about the rulebook work is that whenever I was working on rulebooks, I always insisted on we follow my uh, procedures and processes that I put in place for that. And it's always nice when you see that happening, when you see a nice folder structure with proper version control of documents and everybody's working on the same version and you see it happening and you see this 
this machine, this engine turning of, oh, we're now on version 11. These people have checked it. The graphic designers fixed the comments. We've now got version 12. Has all of the comments been fixed from version 11? No, the graphic designer missed two of them. Make another comment in version 12. You see that process. It's this living process of watching this rulebook evolve from a very rough outline to the final version. And that it, it's enjoyable to, to, to be part of that. Right. That's it. Thank you very much to everybody who's asked all of the questions on BGG. And as I said at the start, if you want to join the guild on BGG, there is very little discussion there. You are welcome to post any new threads on there if you want my opinion on things or anybody else's opinion on things. So uh, guild number 2258, feel free to join. We're going to take a short break now. We're going to talk about the contest. So every month as part of these live Q&As, I give away £50 worth of games vouchers to Games Law. £25 of those vouchers comes from Games Law themselves, they pay for it, and the other £25 of those vouchers comes from me. Um, this is to celebrate the fact that we reached 800 patron supporters last year, and we've managed to stay above 800 patron supporters this year, which is great. So a big thank you to all of my patron supporters. Uh, and as a, as a wanting to give something back, that's what we do. So Games Law put in £25, I put in £25, and every month we give away £50 worth of vouchers. To win the £50 worth of vouchers for this month, all you need to do is enter the contest. Vicky's going to put a link in the chat uh, to the contest. It's a Google form and it will ask for your name, your email address, um, whether you are a patron supporter of mine or not, because if you're a patron supporter, you get double entries uh, and the password. And we haven't even decided what the password is going to be. Let's say chopstick, because I've got my chopstick here, which is my pointer that I use now when I'm when I'm doing live streams. So chopstick is the password. Um, and yeah, you could win £50 worth of vouchers. The winner last month was none other than Mad Halfling, Phil the Sheep. Uh, well, congratulations, Phil, for, for entering. And I think Phil said yesterday that he entered the contest literally at the last minute because the contest is open right now, but you have until the day before the next live Q&A to enter. So if you're watching this video live, click on the form, enter the contest now so that you don't forget. But if you're watching this back afterwards and you think, oh, it's too late, I missed the live show, you can still enter the contest all the way up to when's the live Q&A when's the live Q&A going to be next month? The live Q&A in November is going to be the 30th. So you have until the 29th of November 2022 to enter the contest. Um, and as I mentioned earlier on, we normally get about one and a half thousand to two thousand views on these video logs, on these Q&As. Guess how many entrants we have to the contest? We have about 130 people enter the contest. So it doesn't cost you anything to enter and you could win £50 worth of games voucher. So a big thank you again to Games Law uh, for the £25, but also a big thank you from me uh, to all of my patron supporters that make not this video, not just this video possible, but a lot of the other videos as well. Right, are we are we done? Can we can we go and have dinner and lie down? Or have we got some we've got some live questions? Right, okay, let's go to the live questions. First one is from Brandon. Uh, am I going to BGGCon? I'm not going to BGGCon. As I mentioned earlier on, I don't get a chance to go to the American conventions anymore um, for a couple of reasons. Um, the main one being that, um, I mean, I love them. BGGCon was fantastic. Gen Con was amazing. Origins. I enjoyed Origins as well. Not as good as the other two, but I really enjoyed. I enjoyed going to them. Unfortunately, um, I don't travel well. And I suffer from a lot of various stresses and anxiety and things like that. So every time I went to an American convention, it would be a 20 to 22 hour journey. 
I would get there having not slept and be a complete wreck and a complete ball of anxiety. And then I wouldn't sleep. I'd probably sleep about two hours a night for about six or seven days. I'd demo solidly for like 12 hours a day. I'd literally fight to stay awake. And then I'd have a 20 to 24 hour journey home. The health impact that that was having on me uh, was not good. So um, yeah, during COVID, obviously those trips to America stopped. And I used that as, a, as an opportunity to say, I'll tell you what, actually, I can't really carry on doing this anymore. Never say never. You know, I, I was invited to go back to Gen Con next year and I would have gone. Unfortunately, I've got a wedding to go to. Not unfortunately. Unfortunately is the wrong word to use. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean. I don't mean unfortunately I'm getting married. I mean, unfortunately, we happen to have chosen a wedding date which clashes with a very good convention. I'm in trouble. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm not going to BGGCon, but it is a really, really good convention to go to. Ricky's asking, should I buy the expensive big deck box thingy by Gamegenic? I don't know. Um, Gamegenic is a company that make, they're the people who took over from Fantasy Flight Games making sleeves. When Fantasy Flight Games stopped making sleeves, Gamegenic started making sleeves, but Gamegenic also do various card holders and game boxes and things like that. I don't really have any experience of those products, so I can't tell you whether to buy that. Um, but if anybody has uh, got any experience of the Gamegenic boxes, then let us know. But apparently there is an expensive big deck box thingy, and Rick wants to know whether he should buy it or not. Uh, Mark is asking, give us an update on GridCon, related paperwork and anything we should do beforehand. So an update on GridCon. For those people who don't know, GridCon 3 is the convention that me and Vicky organised together. It is happening on November the 11th to the 13th. If you do not have a ticket, then I'm afraid you cannot come. Um, tickets are sold out, so please don't just turn up at the door because we won't be able to let you in. We are limited on space uh, and we are, we are a sold out event, which is great. Um, but it is still taking us about two to three hours a day of admin. And it always surprises me. We've been running conventions now for a few years and it always surprises me just how much work there is to do. Uh, the things that I've been doing this week is I've been designing, we've been designing the lanyard badges. They are now done, they've gone off to the printer. We've been designing the looking for player signs. That's been done, gone off to the printer. The room sponsorship posters that are gonna be in each room because we've got sponsorship from various publishers. Uh, so we've done them, did them on Saturday, they've gone off to the printer. Uh, or did I do them on Monday? I can't remember. No, I did, I did them over the weekend. Um, what have we done today? We've done something today for GridCon. Or have we not? Every day, every day we're doing something for GridCon. And I've got more stuff to do for tomorrow. We need to design the roll-up banner because we're going to have a roller banner made. That needs to be done tomorrow. Uh, the raffle stuff, that's it. We posted about the raffle. We've made, we made a decision on... Uh, where the where the where the raffle money is going so that's been done today we've got the library to finish we've got the raffle prizes to this yeah there's still a lot to do um we'll get there we'll get there um t-shirts we've come where all the t-shirt order has gone in so if you wanted a t-shirt i'm afraid that time has passed we've put the t-shirt order in so yeah there's loads there's loads that needs doing when you're organizing a convention but we're getting we're getting close um yeah Peter is asking, how do I feel about LCGs as a lifestyle game and the business model? He's asking as an adduct, as an addict to all three of the major ones. So Peter, um, I've got a lot of experience with LCGs. I'm, I, I used to play Magic the Gathering a lot. In the late 90s, 
Magic the Gathering was the only thing that I did. I spent an absolute fortune on it. I was playing two or three times a week. I was going away every weekend. Uh, I was in the UK Top 100. I took part in the Nationals. I was a DCI Level 3 judge. So I was, I was seriously, seriously into Magic the Gathering for a few years. Um, as far as the LCG goes, I've got seriously into Netrunner. Um, I do a lot of the Arkham Horror card game. I say a lot of it. I've not played it for a while. Marvel Champions. I've got pretty much everything for Marvel Champions. So I, I think the games are great. Well, some of them are great. Some of them not so great. I, I dabbled with the Game of Thrones one, which was very good. I tried the uh, Legends of the Five Rings one twice, but found it way too complicated. Um, but I'm a fan of card games and I've tried a lot of the LCGs and the CCGs for a while. So what are my thoughts? How do I feel about them being lifestyle games? It all depends on the game, to be honest. Now, Marvel Champions, if we take Marvel Champions, for example, Marvel Champions is having a lot of cards coming out for it every time. And I don't keep up with it as regularly as I could. But if I was to go three or four months between playing it, I can still dip in and I can still play a game. That's fine because it's cooperative. If we looked at Netrunner, and the reason why I stopped playing Netrunner is that every month I was buying the packs, but I just wasn't having time to play them. So, and, and in order to be competitive, you're always having to tweak your deck and look out for the new cards. You can't go to a Netrunner tournament with a deck that's six months old. I mean, you could, but the problem is you'd probably get beaten by all of the new cards and new stuff and everything else. So yeah, the problem with those games is that at a competitive level, if you want to take part in the competitive scene, you need to keep buying them regularly. You need to keep up to date. You need to keep reading all of the articles, tweaking your decks and staying up to date. Whereas with other LCGs like the Marvel Champions ones, you can just dip in and dip out whenever you want to. So I, I do love those games. I've played a lot of them and I do enjoy a lot of them. And uh, I have no problem with the lifestyle game ones. It's just you need to dedicate a lot of time to it. Um, as a business model, I think it's a successful business model in it and it works very well because it, it gets gets people buying it repeatedly. Um, you know, if Marvel Champions was a game that just came out and people bought it and played it and then there was nothing more and then the designers went off and went and designed a different game, the, it wouldn't work so well. The fact that they're keeping producing cards for it proves that it is successful uh, and that's because it's a great game. Next question from Alexander. Uh, did I play Sierra Madre type games, BIOS Megafauna and BIOS Origins? If if not, what is your opinion about the games? So thank you for the question, Alexander. I have spoken about games from uh, this designer before. Um, I'm not a big fan. Uh, I'm not a big fan of games uh, by Phil Eklund for a few reasons. Uh, the first one is Phil Eklund's um, personal opinions about the world and life. I'm not a big fan of those, uh, so I don't support his views on the world. Uh, I also think that they are some of the worst rule books that have ever been written for any game ever. And my personal opinion is, why should I spend my time and effort in trying to understand your game when you haven't put in the time and effort to do a good rule book? So I, I have no time for bad rule books anymore. But also of the games that I have played of his, I hated them. Really, really didn't enjoy them. I found that his style of game design, which I know a lot of people like, it's just not for me, is more of a simulation rather than a game, and I found them very random. So yeah, games games from Phil Eklund, a, a big a big pass for me. Now you you have mentioned Sierra Madre games, and you've mentioned BIOS Megafauna, BIOS Origin. I don't know if they are Phil Eklund games or not, 
but anytime I hear Sierra Madre or or anything like that, I associate it with with Phil Eklund, rightly or wrongly. I might I might not be right. Uh, next question: Do I have plans for the Patreon members to get their hands on more exclusive content? Um, I mean, I'd love to, but it's a case of time. Um, you know, my Patreon supporters are the people who fund the channel. They make not only this video possible, if we, but if we look at all the content that I'm making this week, which was an unboxing video, a live Q&A, two playthrough videos on Friday, none of that's paid for. None of these videos that I'm making this week, apart from Sunday, is sponsored. Um, and it's Patreon support that keeps that funding going. Now, I do like to, uh, to release some exclusive content for Patreon supporters, and there will be some exclusive content for Patreon supporters this week, which is watching me set up and learn how to play Frostpunk which is probably going to be a very long video. Um, and I have thought in the past about doing some, you know, uh, some extra content for patron supporters. But at the moment, it's a case of I don't have time to fit in that extra content. So I'm not sure how I would do it. Um, I also like the fact that most of my content is available to the public. Um, the patron support is always an optional extra. It's always if you are able to support me on Patreon, then your support is very much appreciated. I'm not keen when people put a lot of content behind a paywall. So I like, um, I try to keep generally my Patreon only content as the behind the scenes views, the content that generally wouldn't go out to the public. Um, that that's what I try to do. But yeah, I'm not ruling that out in future. Uh, next question from Hannah. Have I played everything from Endless Winter now? No, I haven't. I haven't used the Aurora. I haven't used the Mammoth modules. So yeah, I've played most of the big expansions for Endless Winter, but the small little additions, I've not played with them. I don't think they have much change on the game. There is the Mammoth module, there's the Canine Familiars module, uh, there's the Aurora Borealis module, uh, and there's the Squirrel and Nut promos that I've got. I, I haven't played with them, but they are ones that you would just add into an existing game rather than um, think, you know, th they don't class as a full big expansion. So no, I haven't had a chance to play with them. I, I haven't played it since we did all of those videos on it. And that's not to say that I've had enough of playing it. It's just that I have to get on with the other stuff that I need to do instead. Uh, Kitty says, how large are those stuffies? They look humongous. Um, this one is, this is Arnie the Armadillo. Um, if I if I just hold it up, you can see, there you go. If I put it against my chest, you can see how big it is. So it, it, it's pretty big. Uh, and this is Steve the Snail. S Steve is slightly smaller than... Arnie? Okay, he's a lot smaller than Arnie. Um, but yeah, that's that Steve the Snail. So yeah, that's those. Let's get it back in the right position. Oh, there you go. There he is. Uh, and because I'm using a green screen, he's got a bit of a speckled effect because obviously he's green himself. Um, and this is William, which is a, a gift from Josh's, uh, Josh's wife, I think. Right, next. Uh, Zodtan says, what are your thoughts on publishers that come out with a big box that contains everything from a game, especially if you already own the game? Personally, it irks me. Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? Um, you've bought the game, you've bought all of the expansions, and then they go and do a big box version. And you're like, but I've bought the game, I've got all of the expansions, and you're now doing a big box with everything in. Personally, I would prefer the big box with everything in, because otherwise you've got all of these boxes and you don't know where to put it. So I can absolutely understand the negative feelings that it gives you when you're like, well, I've already bought all of this and now there's a big box. But on the flip side, it allows people to go, oh, I'll tell you what, I've seen that game and that looks good. And now here's my opportunity to buy it. 
with all of the expansions. So I've got mixed feelings on it. Um, I'm surprised it's as popular as it is because generally speaking, a big box version with all of the expansions included is going to be expensive. And if the target audience for that is people who don't own the game, then the price point of getting into that game, for example, let's just pick on one thing that I'm expecting to arrive at some point is Kingdom Builder, the big box. Now, Kingdom Builder is a game which I enjoy. I really enjoy Kingdom Builder and I only have the base game. And Kingdom Builder has a billion expansions. Thankfully, I now have a professional relationship with Queen Games, who published, who did a Kickstarter for a big box version of Kingdom Builder. And they said, Paul, would you like a copy of this to cover on the channel? And I said, yes, please, because I really, really like Kingdom Builder. And I would actually love to try some of these expansions. So it's great for me because I only had the base game. That base game will then be given away or, uh, you know, um, be put into a charity raffle or something. And I will get a big box version with all of the expansions. So that's great. Um, but as I say, if you've if you've already got all of the game, you're thinking, oh, I wanted the big box version. So, yeah, I, I got mixed feelings on it and I can understand uh, that it would irk some people. Um, next question from Zilbernet. What are my thoughts on Peloponnese and expansions? Played it at a con recently and added it to your collection immediately. So I was there the year that Peloponnese came out at Essen. I can't remember what year it was. I'm thinking it was probably about 10 or 12 years ago would be my guess. So I'm going to guess 2010. Somebody tell me if I'm right or not. Um, and I remember Paul Bryant from Games Law. I don't know if Paul's in the chat. He's probably not. But yeah, Paul was there that year, went over with us. And Paul was playing it in the hotel room and really liked it as well. So I remember playing it and I remember liking it, but I haven't played it really since. I didn't pick up a copy of it myself. I think some friends of mine picked up a copy and I played it a few times with them. And from my memory of playing it, I enjoyed it. Um, and I've heard the expansion was good as well. But it's really nice that a game that is quite old now is still being played and still finding its uh, it, it, its players. So cool. Jerome is asking, did I finish my Stroop Waffles? Yes, thank you very much, Jerome. Your Stroop Waffles, I, to be honest, Jerome, I'm not sure the Stroop Waffles that you gave me actually made it back to the UK. They may have been consumed on the way home. One packet did make it back to the UK, uh, but I don't think it was yours. I think yours was the first ones that I opened. So yeah, they didn't make it back. Uh, James is asking a question. Do I still play the prototypes of games that you either haven't come out yet or have not come out yet, such as Power Core Call of Cthulhu? The answer to that is no. Um, and that again, similar to my comment on Too Many Bones, is not because I didn't like it. So if, if let, let's just pick on this one specifically. Power Core Call of Cthulhu was a game that came out on Kickstarter from Board and Dice and failed. It really didn't do very well. I think it actually funded, but nowhere near the funding level that they wanted, or maybe they cancelled it when it had just got... I can't quite remember. Um, but Board and Dice had been working on, the, on this game for a long time, and they went on Kickstarter with it, and the response to the game was absolutely nowhere near what they expected and nowhere near what they wanted. So they pulled the campaign, they've gone back to the drawing board with the game, and I think it's a real shame because I played the game and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was an excellent game and I enjoyed the gameplay. I enjoyed the decisions that you had to make in the game. And yeah, I just really enjoyed the game. Have I played it since? The answer is no. And it, it's, you know, I'm sounding like a bit of a broken record. It's time. It, it, everything, but most of my answers 
that are always no is simply because I don't have time. Did I think Power Core Call of Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu was a good game? Yes. Do I still have the prototype? Yes. It has been moved to the attic, but I still have the prototype. If I had a free weekend and somebody came over and said, I fancy playing Power Core Call of Cthulhu, do you want a game? I'd say yes. But I just, I don't have the time to fit that in. So generally speaking, the prototypes that I've got of games which I've covered on the channel, I won't then play again. Um, but that's not because it isn't a good game. Now, sometimes as well, quite often in fact, uh, when the final game comes out, it is quite different from the prototype. So also, another another angle to this is, if I get a prototype copy of a game, let's say Unconscious Mind, okay? I have a prototype copy of Unconscious Mind. I am learning how to play it tonight, and I'm actually going to be recording a playthrough video of it next Tuesday, which is going to be a Patreon exclusive, but then the video will be edited and it will go up on the Kickstarter page. Will I then play Unconscious Mind again until it actually comes out? And the answer is no. And that is because I already know, I've spoken to the designer, that he said, look, Paul, the prototype that you've got and the game that we're going to do for the video, we've already made a couple of tweaks. And during the Kickstarter campaign, as backers play it and people start playing it and playtesting it, there might be some more tweaks. So part of me is thinking, why am I bothering playing this game when I know that this game is going to change between now and when it comes out? I'd, I'd like to, right, I've got, I've played the game, I've got an idea of it, I've got a, a rough idea of how it plays, now I'll wait for the final copy to come out. Next question from Teddy. Uh, just looking at the time, we are quarter past six and we have loads more questions. So we do need to be disappearing at about half six tonight. So can I just ask, no more questions, please. We've got plenty of other questions to go through now. If you have any other questions for me, please wait until November's live Q&A. Um, and I'll now answer the rest of the questions that we've got. Right, so from Teddy. Uh, I am concerned about the growing political and humanitarian issues with China. Seeing as many games are produced there, should we as consumers perhaps this address this issue with publishers? That is a very, very good question, Teddy. And it is one of those things which sometimes, you know, I think about and I think about, hang on a minute. Yeah, you look at the world situation and you look at what's going on. And the reality is that a lot of our board games are made in China. And when we look at China's record on human rights and various other things, we might not agree with those. And yet the board games that we buy are made in China. I, I don't know. And the reality is, let's say, for example, I wanted to take a stand and I decided I am not going to buy any board games or I'm not going to cover any board games on the channel which are produced in China. Let's let's just say, for example, that I decide I'm going to say that and I'm going to stick to my guns and I'm not going to have anything to do with them. My channel would slowly disappear because a lot of the games, and even, even when the games are not completely produced in China, sometimes China might produce the miniatures, for example, because they do really good miniatures that are hard to produce elsewhere. Um, so that's just the reality of where we are. If I, we were, if, if we were collectively going to turn around to publishers and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Mr. Publisher, I'm not going to buy your game because you're having it produced in China. It would take a lot of people for them to change their mind. And at the moment, I don't think they have really a choice. Um, that's that's just that's just how things are. The, the, the big companies in China that are producing games, Panda, E-Star, fantastic quality, 
do a really, really good job. I don't know if there is anybody else that can match them on quality and price. Um, and if there is, why aren't other publishers using them? So yeah, I think that's just that's just where it is. And it, it is is one of those things that sometimes we just have to have to just deal with. Uh, Ray is saying, following on from that question, some small businesses are making improvements for sustainability reasons. Is sustainability impacting the board games industry? Yeah. So one of the, one of the unboxing videos that I did last week, this was a little bit unusual, but I did an unboxing video last week for Atiwa, which is Uwe Rosenberg's new game. And when I took the cards, I noticed that they weren't wrapped in plastic. You know, the plastic wrappers that are normally around decks of cards with the little tape that you pull open and you take the cards out. Lookout Games no longer use that. So since earlier this year, uh, they have basically said they are not using the single-use plastic in their things. They are using more papery, environmentally friendly stuff. Uh, and that was really good to see. And I'd love to see more publishers following suit. Unfortunately, this does tie back, which Ray says, to... Um, uh, to the to, to the production in China. There's a lot of stuff which arrives from China. Um, and I'm thinking specifically the stuff that I've had recently where you'll have a card and it's it's wrapped in plastic. And then there's another thing which is, and there's way too much plastic used in them. Um, so yeah, is sustainability impacting the board games industry? I'm not sure it is because we are still seeing huge numbers of new games coming out, being produced in China, filled with single use plastic. Yeah, it's a bit of a problem. Uh, Devon Talks is in the chat. Hi, Devon. Good to see you at Essen. Thank you very much. And he sent me a super chat. Wow. $50 super chat. Thank you very much, Devon, for, for your support. Uh, I think uh, that super chat does go to charity. I'm pretty sure it does. So I do appreciate that support. But yeah, anybody who uses the super chat feature within YouTube to donate money, um, for those who don't know, every single penny of my advertising revenue from YouTube goes to charity. And I think the super chats get bundled in with that payment so i don't i don't think i get any of that money from that super chat it, do, it does all go to charity so thank you very much devon that's very uh very appreciated of you uh and that will be 50 dollars that goes to i'm not sure which charity we've decided gets the money gets the money this month but it will certainly go to a go to a good cause um yes much appreciated um if anybody does want to support me personally patreon is the is the way to do it um, patreon.com forward slash gaming rules is, is the way that people can support me. That money, that money does go to me. None of that money goes to charity. Some of it goes to PayPal and Patreon, but the money, that money goes to me. And, and a few people would like to support me, but don't want the regular monthly contribution. Um, the best way of doing that, to be honest, is to sign up to Patreon, make a, a make one contribution, wait for that contribution to be taken and then cancel the membership. That is the best way to do it because Patreon makes sure that all of the all of the VAT and tax and stuff is all uh, is all taken care of. Right. Next question from Peter. How bad are we gamers at judging the complexity of games, especially with regard to family or gateway titles? Uh, Peter is often surprised by how difficult some popular concepts appear to non-gamers. How bad are we as gamers at judging the complexity of games for non-gamers? Generally speaking, I mean, I think I'm pretty good at it, but that's because I've got a lot of uh, experience with that. And, I, and I've spoken about this issue before. There are a number of gamers that, because they are gamers and they've played a lot of games and they play medium or heavy games or whatever, that they go, oh, 
here's it. Here's it. Let, let's pick Uwe, Uwe Rosenberg games, right? So let's say you're you're a, you're a fan of Uwe Rosenberg games, and you play Feast for Odin, you play Agricola, uh, and you play um, what other complex games is he doing? Anyway, you play Uwe Rosenberg's. You play his complex games, okay? Then you go out and you buy Nussfjord, which is another Uwe Rosenberg game. And you go, ah, Nussfjord, that's quite light. And you're absolutely right. Nussfjord is light when compared to his heavier games. Does that mean that you can get Nussfjord out at a family gathering on Christmas afternoon? No. And that is where a lot of gamers fall into the trap of just because it's easy for you and just because it's a light game for you does not mean that non-gamers can understand this. Uh, and I've seen it, I've seen this happen many times before where a gamer has tried to introduce a, a group of non-gamers to what they think is a relatively simple game and it just absolutely blows their mind and, th and th the downside is they just don't enjoy it they don't enjoy it and they get a bad opinion about the games and, and a gaming hobby so if you're one of those people please don't use Nussfjord to teach families how to play games there are so many games out there that are accessible for families right now uh, and more and more are coming out all the time. They're the ones that you should start with. Uh, next question from Tyler. Any trips to the US coming up? No. Uh, rewind. <laughs> rewind a little bit and talk about um, uh, talk about that. But yeah, sitting down and playing a game with you in person would be fantastic. Uh, the closest we can get is moving our virtual hands around on Tabletop Simulator. Um, Andrew is asking, which board game should he get? Should you get your Secret Santa this year? I don't know. Um... What's what's the limit? Tell us what the limit is. But yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I, I don't ever take part in those secret Santas myself because first of all, I'm not a presence person. I hate buying presents because I'm so worried about getting the wrong thing. And also I don't like being I don't like, generally speaking, presents being bought for me. And that is because every time somebody gets me a present, which is something that I either don't want, don't need, or already have, it gives me bad feelings. They've gone out, they've spent their money, they've spent their mental energy and time in buying me a present, and it's something which I don't want, which I then can't get rid of, so I end up sitting here with it in the house, taking up space, and it's like, I didn't want it. So the whole idea of presents for me is just, it fills me with a lot of, it triggers my anxiety. So the idea of a secret Santa is like, no, no, I, that, that's the worst thing for me. I, I would literally never be able to make a decision about what to buy anybody. Uh, suggestions in the chat or suggestions from Vicky are so clover and just one. But you never know who you're buying for. What if what if you're buying for somebody who doesn't like party games? I don't know. Um, yeah, and I don't and I don't I don't know what the limit is. Uh, next question from Peter: As virtual game testing becomes all pervading, all pervasive, pervading, is the practical physicality of the final product suffering? Uh, a, a little bit. Um, and especially during lockdown when people were using uh, online tools to test their games uh, more often than not. Um, thankfully, there are a number of publishers who don't fully rely on online playtesting of games. They have the, the nonce to, to understand that, oh, wait a minute, this isn't going to work practically. So I don't know, Peter, if you've got any, if you've got any, do you have any thoughts on games which you think have come out, which you've gone, oh, wait a minute, this, this doesn't work physically. Um, this is probably a, a, a fault because they play tested it online and they didn't actually see how it would really work in practice. 
Um, it's, it's a good question though. And yeah, there are a lot of people who are using, you know, Tabletop Simulator or other online tools to play test their games. And that's great because we need that testing because the more, the more testing that takes place, the better the games are. But you've got to remember at the end of the day that somebody's going to make a physical game of it. Um, there are certainly some that we've played online where you've gone, oh, that's so much easier to do online than it is in real life. Uh, and there is there is a possibility that, you know, the people developing the game and the people designing the game relied on the online testing so much they didn't realise, oh, wait a minute, now that we've actually got a deck of 4,000 cards that need to be shuffled at the start of every game, hmm, maybe this isn't going to work. Um, next question from Fab, what is the best sandwich to eat one-handed while playing a game? Best question of the day. Best sandwich to eat one-handed while playing a game? I'm going to say a lemon curd sandwich. Because nothing can fall out. There you go. Lemon curd sandwich. And if you've never had a lemon curd sandwich, lemon curd sandwich on white bread. And I don't eat white bread, but what lemon curd on brown bread, I don't think would go. Um, George Joss says, was there in Essen any hidden gems? I kept getting asked that, George Joss. Every night when I was doing my Essen live streams, people kept asking me, what are the hidden gems of Essen? I don't know because I didn't spend much time looking around at other games. Um, that is a good question for the Slack channel, for those people that were uh, at Essen. It's also possibly a good question for the Guild. Or it's a question for the chat. If you were at Essen, and if you're watching this video back afterwards, also let me know in the comments. If you were at Essen and you found a hidden gem, let me know what it was. Because uh, I've not been reading any of the reports that have come out from Essen. All I've heard about is all talk about the, the big hot games that I already knew about. But if there was a hidden gem of Essen, which is a game which you hadn't heard of before, not many people were talking about it, but you played it and it was really good, let me know so that I can then let George just know. Um, next question, Jaffa Cake flavoured coffee from Vicky Stevens. No, no, I don't, I, well, I mean, coffee with a dash of orange in it works. You get orange thingy, whatever it is, in coffee. Do you get chocolate in coffee? Yeah. Okay, so chocolate and orange in coffee, therefore, right. I challenge somebody to put a Jaffa cake, an actual proper Jaffa, no. Well, just dip it in, in a coffee. There's the challenge. I want to see photos. I'm not going to do it because I don't drink coffee. Um, in relation to the paid promotion subject, so Jonathan says, uh, to the extent that channels rely on getting games early to get eyeballs, isn't that even more valuable to the channel than getting the game for free or whether they are paid to make the video? It's a good question, Jonathan. So this is following on from the discussion that I had earlier about paid promotion. And you're absolutely right. There are, I mean, it's different for me. As I said earlier on, every single penny of my advertising revenue goes to charity. So for me, when I cover a game, whether it gets 1,000 views or whether it gets 10,000 views doesn't make me any money. Absolutely no money whatsoever. But I don't know any other content creator who gives all of their advertising revenue to charity. So let's say that I'm a content creator who relies on advertising revenue, okay? I would be absolutely desperate to get games early. And this, this is one one reason why I give all of my advertising revenue to charity is because if I didn't, then I know that I have to get that game early and I have to cover it on the channel early because I need the views. And I don't want to be driven by that. And I know some content creators 
they are driven by that. Some of them will deny it, but I know for a fact that some of them are desperate to cover games before anybody else because then they'll get the views. And if they get the views, they get more subscribers. And if they get that, they get more money from the advertising revenue. And it's that is just the thing. That is how it is. I, I'm, I'm not driven by that whatsoever. You know, obviously I'd like the views because I'd like people to watch the videos. And the more views I get, the more money we raise for charity. So it is an element of it. But I think what Jonathan is saying is, is getting a game early more valuable to them than getting the game for free? Generally speaking, because of advertising revenue, yes. Um, but whether they are paid to make the video, yeah, as I say, for me, it's, it's different because I don't make any money from the channel itself. Next question from Tony, how often do I get to play games that I consider in my top 10? Not often enough, Tony. Um, yeah, I mean, games that are in my top 10. Through the Ages, when was the last time I played Through the Ages? Well, I play it on the app all the time, so I, I get to play that quite often. Um, what else is in my top 10? Mage Knight, how often do I get to play Mage Knight? Maybe once a year, if I'm lucky. It's still in the top 10. Spirit Island, how often do I get to play that? Actually, I've played Spirit Island probably two or three times this year, maybe, I think. Certainly at least once or twice. So yeah, the, the, sad, the sad thing is, and, and it's not just me because I'm a content creator, everybody else is in the same position, is there's so many games coming out all the time, we're not getting to cover games that are, that are really great as often as we'd like. Uh, next question from Devon Talks. Uh, if you could play games with only one content creator who lives in the US, whose name is Devon, and who you met at Essen, who would I pick? Uh, so I think about that. No, I'd, I'd, I'd have to get back to you on that one. It's a difficult question. I'm only saying that because I only had to go. He's not here. Um, no, yeah, Devon Talks Tabletop. I met him at Essen for the first time um, and I didn't recognise him at the time because we were in Essen. We all had masks on and it's actually quite difficult uh, to recognise people with masks on. Um, but we got chatting at the Chip Theory Games booth on the Sunday and he gave me a card uh, and then I went back and I looked at his channel. I was like, oh, I've actually watched a couple of these videos. Um, so yeah, go and check him out on YouTube, Devon Talks Tabletop, great channel, lots of different types of content on there. Um, and I've reached out to him and said, look, love to do some collaboration with you at some point, which I would like to do. Again, it's just it's just time at the moment. Um, Ian Turner says, are there any gaming rules events planned in Devon? <laughs> well, the, there's GridCon, except we've moved GridCon to Somerset, but it's only just in Somerset. As far as I'm concerned, it still classes as Devon. Uh, I hope nobody from Taunton's watching. Um, so gaming rules events planned in Devon, other than Friday nights around at my house and the occasional games weekend, uh, which doesn't happen very often these days, but no, nothing, no no gaming rules events planned for, for, for Devon, other than the stuff that's happening in here. Um, question following on from the one asked in a previous Q&A. Where, where's the end of these questions? Oh, that's there. Right, okay. We're, gonna, we're, we're overrunning a little bit. Um, so next question from Kay Hewitt. Who would make the best board game designer... And why? Stevie Wonder, Pingu or Paul Gascoigne? We had that. No? I, I don't understand. A question following on. Okay. V Vicky will let me, because that was a question that was asked last time. Oh, we asked who would win. Okay, so now, so it's a similar question. Variation on a theme is who would make the best board game designer? So last month, the question was asked, who would make the best uh, who would win, Stevie Wonder, Pingu or Paul Gascoigne? What did we say? Paul Gascoigne. Uh, who would make the best board game designer? 
I'm, I'm just as baffled as I was last month. Um, I'm going to say Stevie Wonder. Out of those three. Pingu, uh, definitely not, because Pingu's not real. Pingu's made of um, plasticine. So I don't think people made of plasticine make good games designers. Paul Gascoigne, I don't think, would make a good game designer. Um, but I think Stevie Wonder would, out of the three. There you go. Right. George Oss, uh, I'm, I'm running short of time and the battery's about to run low on the camera. Um, we could plug it in. Yeah, just bear with us a minute. I didn't think the battery would run low on the camera. So I'm going to have to just get this. Uh, yeah. Talk amongst yourselves. Do you know where it goes? Right. So it goes in the back, on the side. Shall I do it? Ricky's going to try and work out how the camera plugs in. Is it that side? It's it's on the back. You found it? No. Right, I'll go and do it. Hang on. It goes in there. Yeah, can you see where it goes? I can't see. Right, I think we have power. We have power. Hey! Right, so next. Um what irritates me the most in a in a player in a player of a heavy Euro game compared to what irritates you the most during a filler game? Oh, that's a good question. So what what irritates me the most when I'm playing a heavy Euro game is when we're playing the game for the first time, okay, so whenever I'm playing a heavy Euro game and we're all sat down and we're all playing it for the first time, it's new to all of us. And the first time that you play a game, I believe the objective of that game is to learn the rules, see if you enjoy it, push and pull buttons and levers to see what happens. And then after that, you can then, you, you've, you then know how to play the game. The first time I play a heavy Euro game, it's a learning game. And anybody who... I know some people who say every game counts and the first time you play a game you've got to be competitive. I want to be competitive from the very first time I play it. I don't I don't agree with that at all. So the first time I play a heavy Euro game for me, it's a write-off, you learn in the game, you do stuff, you see whether it works or not. So what irritates me are the people who go, okay, I know it's the first game and I know we're all learning it, but I'm gonna literally sit here for hours and analyze every single decision to try and do the no just play the game play the game anyway uh what irritates me the most during a filler game hmm and a filler game for me is anything which is like 15 minutes or less i'm not sure i think i think what would irritate me is the assumption from some people that because it's a filler game that means you can just mess around and do random stuff and be silly. There are some filler games which are still very good games and should be played properly. If you go into a filler game going, oh, well, it's only 15 minutes, it doesn't matter. I might as well just play random cards and shove this up my nose and do silly stuff. It's like, no, we're still playing a game. It doesn't matter how long the game is, we still should be playing the game. So I think that's what we do take me. Uh, Randolph is just catching up, curious what I thought of Deal With The Devil. I actually talked about Deal With The Devil in my last video log. So rather than rather than repeat everything here, 
if you check out my video log from when was it a couple of weeks ago it's labeled as the i think it's labeled as the september no i think it's the october video log but i basically talk about all of the games that i've played in the last few weeks and i do talk about deal with the devil in that video log short summary it's an absolute work of genius it's a very very clever design it's a unique game there's nothing like it out there it's not a game which i personally would enjoy playing myself and that isn't because the game's any good it's because it requires a certain level of deduction and a little bit of working out who's doing what and all of that sort of stuff and i'm not good at that sort of stuff in games i want everything to be open and visible so that I can understand what's going on. I need information in order to be to help me make decisions. Uh, and in that game, I don't have that. So yeah, it's a great game. And I know people who absolutely love the game. It's just not one personally for me. Next question for me in Turner. There have been a number of board games made into films. Snakes and Ladders, 1980, was it? Wow. Clue, 1985. Is that the one we watched with Tim Robbins? Tim, not Tim Robbins, Tim, Bert, not Tim Burton, Tim, 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 Tim Curry. Yeah, so that was good. Candyland, 2005, Battleship, 2012. We saw Battleship, didn't we? Yeah, uh, to name a few. If you name a modern movie based on, if you made a modern movie based on board games, what would it be? Mage Knight, obviously. Mage Knight would be a fantastic film. It would be awesome. Yeah. I, I Yeah, I think. Definitely. I mean, what else have we got? Cloudspire would be a good film. Uh, no, maybe not. Hopla Marcus Victorum would be a good film. Uh, Australia would be a great film, I think. Oh, there's loads. Yeah, I'm just looking through the collection here. Batman Gotham City Chronicles. No, that would make a rubbish film. Nobody would ever make a film with Batman in it. Um... Yeah, there's quite a few, actually. Endless Winter might make a good film as well. So, yeah, quite a film. Burn Cycle. June Imperium. Lost Ruins of Arnak. Loads. Yeah, loads of them. Um, next question from Ray. In my last monthly update, I gave more opinions than usual. I really liked it. How do you feel about it? So, yeah, for those people who don't know, um, I do monthly video logs. Every month, I talk about all of the games that I've played in the month. Um, and they are not live, they are pre-recorded and they are edited and they go out on the channel. And I do them one a month, just like I do these one a month. And prior to this month, in all of my monthly, in, in all of my video logs that I've done for the last few years, every time I get to a game which I was paid to produce content for, I always erred on the side of caution. I always said, Oh, and I played this game, but I was paid to make content for this video, so I'm not going to tell you anything about it. Oh, and now there's this game, and oh, I can't tell you anything about that one either. And it got to the point where I was getting frustrated with myself. I was getting to the point where I was thinking, hang on a minute, half of the games that I talk about in these video logs, I basically skip past and don't really talk about them. So I, I was getting a bit frustrated. So I've made the decision recently, and I started doing this in my last video log, that... I'm going to step over that line which I drew in the sand of I will not give my personal opinion on games that I was paid to create content for. That is a line which I, that is a, a thing which I have had for years. And I'm not saying I'm going to completely step over that line and everything's going to go chaos, but I've stepped over the line a little bit. 
and what I'm now doing is in my monthly video logs I am giving my honest opinion about the games whether I was paid to create the content for those games or not and my, my question was to anybody who's watched that video log is is that okay and the general response that I have had from people is yes Paul you've been around a long time we know you well enough we know that what you say is the truth we know your opinion on a game is not going to be coloured or tainted by the fact of whether you got paid to make the video or not. Um, that's the general response that I've had from people. So did it make me feel better? Yes, for two reasons. First of all, I'm able to share my thoughts on it because like I keep saying, I'm, I'm a gamer just like you. I have my own thoughts on these games and I want to talk about these games. I want to give my opinions of the games and I want to talk about the things that I liked and things that I didn't like about the games. I'm not going to start doing that at the end of a a paid video you know it, it like like Frostpunk right I'm doing a I'm doing a sponsored video for Frostpunk on Sunday I can tell you now I already love the game but let's say I didn't let's say Glass Cannon Unplugged contacted me and said Paul we'd like to sponsor you to do a playthrough video for the game and I said okay because I need the money thank you very much and I did the video and at the end of the video I went well I didn't really like that it wasn't very good fun on a paid video I'm not going to do that okay but on my monthly video logs I can be a little bit more open and feeling the freedom to be a little bit more open about things and having the general feedback from the people who've watched it have said yes we, we like this and we trust your opinion and we know you're not just gonna you know shill games or anything like that so yeah I, I enjoyed it uh, another question for me Ian is is currently designing a wheat based baked goods game there are three resources valued one to three victory points scones jam and cream would you place the jam or the cream as the top resource? Well, obviously the jam, because I think the law of the world, if you look it up, is it's scone, then the cream, then the jam. I think that's the law. So I follow the law because otherwise I'll get arrested. Um, yeah. For those people who don't know... <laughs> Just Google scones, jam and cream and you will find out the ongoing debate and the wars that have been fought over the opinion. Um, I wonder if they're going to be doing cream teas at Gridcon. Oh, if they do a cream tea at Gridcon, it'll be hilarious to see what they do. Right. Next question from Peter. Is it possible that you at some point could make a video about your best top 10 best solo game experiences? I could, Peter, but... Um, I mean, I could probably do, I, I'm not saying I could do that right now because me with my top tens and one of the reasons why I stopped doing them is I was spending a huge amount of time and I've spoken to Rado about this um, a few months ago because my top tens were taking me about a day and a half to two days to create and he was blown away. He says he does his top tens in like two hours and I'm like, well, how? And he says, well, first of all, I just write down my top ten and then I just talk about them. Well, for me to decide what's in my top 10, that takes me forever. I have to look through my entire collection because my memory isn't very good. Rado, he just went, oh yeah, top 10 games, I know that, I'm just gonna write them down. So it, it, it takes me a huge amount of time. If you were to ask me right now, what are my top 10 solo games? I'd be like, um, well, I like this one and I like that one. And I'd probably forget half of them. So I spend a lot of time thinking about it beforehand. Um, but also it would be out of date. That's the other reason why I err on the side of caution with top 10 best solo games by Paul Grogan is that six months later, it, it might be out of date. Um, but yeah, 
it's a it's a good idea uh any channel plans for christmas yes i do have a couple of plans for christmas um if i haven't done it yet and to be honest the way that this year has gone uh is looking likely i'm not going to do it so my plans are the longer waited paul rates every single game in his collection uh that's probably going to happen over the christmas period um because i can't find i'm, I'm not going to be able to find any other time to do that and if it gets to the end of the year and i haven't done it I will feel that I have let everybody down because I made it a goal of the Patreon last year and we reached that goal and I haven't done it yet. And I feel bad about having not having done it yet. But every time I think about doing it, I've always got too many other things to do. So, um, yes, that's that's one of the plans for, for Christmas. Uh, and the final question is, and I might do a game book as well, but fitting both of them in might be tricky. But to be honest... Everybody will want me to do another fighting fantasy game book, so I'll do both. So yeah, there will be another, and it might not be a fighting fantasy one. It will be another choose your own adventure style book. It might be the new one that I bought, which I didn't get a chance to play, uh, or it might be something different. Um, but yeah, I'll do one of those, but I'll do the other one. So we're going to have a busy Christmas. Right, the final question, final question for today is, again, from Devon Talks Tabletop. What singular aspect of games, other than the rule books, are you most critical about or focused on? Easy. Graphic design. Uh, the graphic design of a game for me is so important. It is much more important than the artwork. It is much more important than the quality of the components. It's much more important than the um, than the miniatures or anything else. Uh, the graphic design of the game. And when I say graphic design, I'm talking graphic design and iconography. And there are certain games out there which have loads and loads of icons which are so intuitive. And the one that comes to mind is Carnegie. Artwork and graphic design by Mr. Ian O'Toole. So he did the artwork and he did the graphic design, but very often it is a different person doing the artwork and the graphic design. Um, but Carnegie, the back page of the rule book for Carnegie has a complete list of all of the icons in the game and what they do. I played my first two or three games without even looking at the icon reference on the back of the rulebook because the iconography was so good and it was so clear that it was it was obvious what they did so yeah for me iconography uh, and and graphic design there we go nice easy question to finish off the day that's everything just before we disappear a few things number one big thank you to all of my patron supporters uh, as i've mentioned a couple of times these videos are not sponsored and a lot of the, the videos that i'm making you know the unboxing yesterday this video today, the two playthroughs on Friday, they're not sponsored in any way. So it's the Patreon campaign that makes those possible. Thank you very much to all of my Patreon supporters. And if you want to support the channel, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash gaming rules. Patreon supporters do get exclusive access to the Slack channel where there's a great community, lots of great discussions going on on there. Usually at the moment about otters. That's the topic of discussion at the moment about golden otters. Um, but we do talk about games as well. Um, and occasionally, as I mentioned earlier on, I do do release. I do release some uh, Patreon-only videos, which, um, yeah, I think the last one I did, uh, or I did one of them. I had a games day here a couple of months ago, so I had a games day, and a load of people came over, and we played games all day, and we played three different, three or four different games during the day, and it was all live streamed, and none of that went public because that was literally just I'm going to turn the overhead camera on, and you're just going to watch Paul playing games with his friends. And it was a very, very rough video, it, very rough videos. It's not something that I would release uh, publicly, um, but occasionally I will do things like that for Patreon supporters. Anyway, 
Thank you to all of my Patreon supporters for keeping the channel going. The second thing is that I wanted to mention is the contest. We haven't really mentioned the contest much, but if you haven't entered the contest yet, enter the contest now. Link is in the chat. Uh, the link also needs to be added to the description of the video. But if you're watching this video, as long as you're watching it before November the 29th, 2022, you can enter the contest. The contest is going to be open until November 29th. Uh, and you can win £50 worth of games vouchers from Games Law. So £25 of those vouchers comes from Games Law themselves, and £25 comes from me as a, as a thank you to you for, for watching the video and supporting the channel. What else was I going to mention? I think that was it. I'm going to be playing Unconscious Mind tonight. Johnny Pat Canton is going to be teaching me how to play Unconscious Mind over Tabletop Simulator tonight. Um, so I'm going to be doing that, and that's happening in 40 minutes' time. Yeah, so we need to go downstairs, get food, and get it all ready and back up. And we don't know what we're having for dinner yet, do we? It might have to be ice cream. Or lemon curd sandwiches. Lemon curd sandwiches. Um, yeah, so we're all done. Thank you very much to everybody for watching. I will see you all in the playthroughs later in the week if you're interested. Attiwa, Friday night. Splendid Jewel, Friday night. And then Frostpunk on Sunday. Other than that, I'll see you all next time. Thanks very much for watching. Take care, everybody. Good night. Good night.